This episode is brought to you by NerdWallet. NerdWallet has helpful tools and tips for all things personal finance. What's the difference between a Roth and traditional IRA again? Turn to the nerds. Should you pay down debt or save for retirement? Turn to the nerds. What kind of credit card is best for you? Yep, turn to the nerds. They take the complicated and make it easy to understand. This really is a no-brainer. For all your money questions, turn to the nerds at nerdwallet.com. In 1916, the U.S. executed Hans Schmidt at Sing Sing Prison. Schmidt is the first and so far only Catholic priest to be executed in the United States. His conviction was for the murder of a woman he had been secretly in a relationship with, but many believe this wasn't his first murder, or even his second. Further investigation showed he had even more murders planned. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and today I'm joined by one of my favorite people on this whole planet, Lainey from True Crime Fan Club. Welcome, Lainey. Can you just tell us a little bit about your podcast? Absolutely, and thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled to be doing the episode with you. True Crime Fan Club is an immersive storytelling podcast that peels back the curtain to give listeners a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. This episode is going to be a bit different other than just having Lainey here. We were both approached by a band called the Bodarks about a song they had recorded called The Ghost of Alma Kelmer, loosely based on the true story of Alma Kellner, an eight-year-old girl who went missing in 1908 and was later found in the basement of a building on the church grounds. Another man was convicted of her murder, but some believe she was a victim of Father Hans Schmidt, the only priest in the United States to ever be executed. He denied involvement in Alma's murder, even after his conviction for the murder of his secret pseudo-wife. This episode will be a bit of a meander as we cover the murder of Alma Kellner, the background of Hans Schmidt, and then the crime he was eventually convicted of. I had a chance to talk to Jeff Brooks from the Bodarks about the song and the case. So at the end of this episode, you'll hear from him, followed by the song. But like I said, we're going to start with the story of Alma Kellner. On December 8, 1909, Alma Kellner left her home to walk to church. Our Catholic listeners will recognize the date as the Feast of Immaculate Conception, and it is considered a holy day of obligation, and as such, eight-year-old Alma was headed to Mass. Something interesting to note is that Alma's family did not typically attend St. John's in Louisville, where Alma was walking to. They generally went to a different parish, very likely St. Mary's, since that's where Alma was a student. It hasn't been said exactly why she was going to St. John's this day, but we know it was near her house, so it was likely an easier walk for the girl to take alone. She had walked there before, so it seems like she did occasionally attend on her own. She was described as a child of great promise by one of the nuns who taught her, and she would occasionally be found in the chapel praying while the other children were playing, so it was no surprise she was eager to make it to morning mass on this holy day of obligation. She left her home at 9.45 for the 10 o'clock mass, and the walk was about 10 minutes. There were two confirmed sightings of her on her walk, though 
you know, probably more people saw her and just didn't register it. This wasn't a rural area. She was walking along major roadways. The first sighting was at a drugstore near her home. The owner saw her and they waved to each other. Five minutes later, she was seen by the mailman. She was a couple blocks closer to the church, so all seems to have been going fine up to this point. Both of these men knew Alma, so these are considered solid sightings. Alma's mother was first alarmed at noon when Alma hadn't returned because she would have expected her well before then. But this was the early 1900s, and it was broad daylight. It was assumed that she had just stopped to play or perhaps visit her grandmother who lived nearby. Kidnapping would not have been anyone's first thought. Eventually, though, when Alma still didn't arrive home... Calls were made to friends and family. The little girl wasn't with any of them, and she hadn't been seen all day. The police were then called in the afternoon. They started at the place they knew Alma had been that day, the church. Because she did not regularly attend church at St. John's, the priest there, Father Schumann, didn't know her and couldn't remember if he saw a girl of her description there that day. It's unlikely he saw her at Mass anyway. Alma's mother thought Mass started at 10, but it actually started at 9. If Alma had made it to Mass at all, it would have been at the tail end and she wouldn't have been seen throughout the service. Police first believed that she was either taken on her way to church or that she had arrived, noticed the doors were closed and service was already nearing the end, and turned to head back home only to be taken on the way home. That evening, Father Schumann asked the church janitor if he had seen the girl. The janitor, Joseph Wendling, was an immigrant from France and lived at the rectory with his wife, who worked as a housekeeper. Wendling said that he had not seen her and that he had only seen two women still in the chapel when he went to lock up after Mass. In the early days of the investigation, it was thought that Alma was abducted for ransom. While her parents weren't wealthy, her uncle was. Frank Fair was a brewer in Louisville and was quite wealthy. It was considered that perhaps Alma was mistaken for her uncle's daughter, or the kidnappers assumed Alma would still bring on a decent ransom. But no ransom note ever came. Eventually, four witnesses would come forward who did see Alma at church that day. One of them saw her come in just a few minutes before Mass ended. Three of the witnesses saw the girl praying after service, and two saw the janitor nearby. All of the witnesses left the church before Alma did. Though Alma wasn't well known to anyone, she was a little girl in a red hat and she stood out, particularly after services when all the other children had left with their parents. It seemed clear that Alma had made it to the church at this point, but the investigation soon stalled without any sign of her or any ransom note. Investigators decided on January 14th, after Alma was missing about five weeks at that point, to return to the church to search again. Immediately after the police arrived and asked Father Schumann if they could search the premises again, Wendling disappeared. He abandoned his wife and took off. Father Schumann did not connect the janitor leaving with the police searching the grounds, so he didn't alert authorities to this. But 
but the search turned up nothing, and the investigation slowed over the months until late May. That spring, an old unused school building on the church grounds had a flooded basement. Concerned the water would damage the foundation of the building, Father Schumann called a plumber to come deal with the leak and pump the water out of the basement. While in the basement, the plumber noticed a bundle, and when he investigated further, he saw a small foot sticking out. Alma Kellner had been found more than five months after she disappeared. The coroner noticed that she had been partially burned, and he believed lime had been used on the remains. And both of these actions were attempts at destroying the body. There was also a possible attempt at dismemberment. The right foot was missing. Whoever killed Alma had tried multiple ways to hide the body and the identity of the victim, but had failed at all of them. It was through dental records that Alma was identified. She had some fillings done, and her dentist was able to match them to the remains. With Alma's body found on the church grounds, Father Schumann was questioned again and told police again that he hadn't seen the girl on December 8th at the service. But he gave more details of his day after the service. After he had lunch, he went back to the church. There was a meeting scheduled, and he was just checking to make sure that the church was warm enough. When he was there, he saw Joseph Wendling getting the church ready for the meeting. Having only just talked to the police a few hours earlier, he thought to ask Wendling about the girl, and he said he hadn't seen her. But Father Schumann noticed something else. The church smelled oddly. Wendling said he was burning some old rags in the furnace and that the rags had some oil spilled on them, and that is what accounted for the smell. Hearing this, the investigators obviously wanted to speak to Wendling, and this is when they were told that he had left on January 14th. And then investigators also wanted to search that furnace. In the furnace, they found a right foot along with other pieces of bone, confirming this is likely where the killer attempted to destroy her body. On questioning his wife, she said she didn't know where he had gone, but hoping he would return, she hadn't disposed of any of his belongings. A search of their rooms at the rectory revealed a bundle of clothes hidden away. There was a black shirt, shorts with dried blood on them, and a knife with dried blood on the blade. The person with access and in charge of the care of both the school building and the furnace at the time Alma disappeared was Joseph Wenling. His choice to abandon his job and his wife on the same day police were searching the church grounds made him the prime suspect, and a nationwide search for him was undertaken. It took until late July for them to find Wendling. Now, I said until late July, but that's just two months later, and it's really nothing short of remarkable in the days before digital footprints that it only took two months. He was found across the country in San Francisco, living under an assumed identity. And the investigators tracked him down through numerous states. His downfall was his love of women. He had girlfriends just about everywhere he went and sent them letters and postcards signed with his assumed name and with a return address. When he was caught, he immediately denied having killed Alma. He said he wasn't running from justice, he was simply running from his wife. Now, before we get to the trial, we need to take a quick break for today's sponsor. Supporting our sponsors helps support the show. 
I'm about a month in to my Sugar Bear Hair Vitamins, and I have to say, when I first tasted the product, I was surprised. I've taken gummy vitamins before, and they always had a kind of a medicinal aftertaste. But these just taste like candy, and they're made with the juice of real berries, but they still contain everything that I need for stronger and healthier hair. With Sugar Bear Hair Vitamins, you're going to get as much vitamin A as four cups of broccoli, as much vitamin C as one cup of cranberries, and as much vitamin B12 as four organic eggs. Sugar Bear Hair is a bestseller on Amazon. It has thousands of rave reviews. The reviewers are talking about how healthy their hair looks and feels, how quickly it's growing. Sugar Bear Hair fans have also found that their nails and their skin quality has also improved over time. The nutrients in these vitamins help with those as well. So go to sugarbearhair.com slash insight for beautiful hair and a healthier you. That's sugarbearhair.com slash insight. Sugarbearhair.com slash insight. Justice moved a lot more swiftly in 1910 than it does now and it only took four months for his trial to begin. The trial brought out more circumstantial evidence against Wenling. The basement Alma's body was found in was accessible only through a trap door from the music room in the old school, a trap door that was generally covered so most people wouldn't know about it. The person with the key to the music room was Wenling, though the key was generally found hanging in the kitchen with the other keys for the buildings on the ground. But a gas meter reader testified that he came to read the meter shortly after Alma went missing and went to the kitchen for the key to the school building. It wasn't there, and when he asked Wenling for it, the janitor refused, saying the meter reader had no need to go in there. The building was not being used, so the gas wasn't being used, and there was no need to read the gas meter. The utility man insisted he had to document the reading regardless, so Winling took him to the old schoolhouse and waited with him while he checked the meter. This was out of the ordinary, since the meter reader would usually check on his own. A grocer also testified that he delivered lime to the church two days after Alma disappeared, and the delivery was received by Winling. Lime can be used to alter the pH of soil, so there is a valid reason a groundskeeper would need it. But it's unlikely he was doing much of that when it was reported to be at below freezing temperatures in December. The defense's first line of strategy was to just question flat out whether that was even Alma's body or not. But they didn't get very far with this. What are the odds? Think about it. The dental work matched. There were a few items like a glove and a rosary that were hers that were found with the body. And then who else could it have been? There were no other children reported missing during that time, let alone a child who was headed to the very location this body was found in. That defense did not get off the ground at all. Wendling, though, took the stand in his own defense. He denied killing Alma. He denied getting that delivery of Lyme. He denied that he denied the meter reader entry into the schoolroom. He claimed the blood on his clothes was from when he had accidentally shot himself in the hand the year before. The doctor, by the way, who he called about that wound confirmed that this shooting actually did happen. And as for the blood on the knife, he said his brother-in-law had used the knife when fixing a horse's hoof and the blood was from the horse and his brother-in-law testified to back this up. Wendling further testified that he didn't see Alma at the church that day. He only saw the two women when he went to close up the church after services. 
And as for leaving the area and changing his name, he said he left to get away from his wife. She was quite a bit older than him, and according to him, she controlled everything. The evidence against Wenling was circumstantial, and this is pointed to when questioning if he was really guilty. But circumstantial evidence is still evidence, and this is a lot of it. After five hours of deliberation, the jury convicted him. He was sentenced to life in prison and was paroled after 24 years and repatriated to France. So what does this case have to do with Father Hans Schmidt? Years after Winling's conviction, Schmidt would be arrested for a murder in New York City, and police would look back to see if there were other mysterious deaths in his past. At the time of Alma's disappearance, Schmidt was in Louisville. Some reports say he was a priest at St. John's, but he was actually a guest of the senior priest at the nearby Church of the Immaculate Conception and was not serving as a priest. He was just studying English. So let's back up and talk about Hans Schmidt. He was born in 1881 in Germany to a large family. When he was a child, his mother made him a cassock like a priest would wear, and he would wear it around pretending to be a priest. They called him the little chaplain or little priest. The translation varies. And he would even pretend to play mass at home with this fake altar. A childhood friend who also eventually became a priest said that Hans was a good child, very studious, but around the age of 20, he started to change. But others say he was a peculiar child, including his own father, and that he enjoyed watching animals being slaughtered. He would pass entire afternoons at the slaughterhouse just watching. At 18, Schmidt entered the seminary, which was a surprise to absolutely no one. He claims to have been ordained on December 23rd, 1904, at the age of 25, but he said this happened in private. He also would later say that he had a heavenly vision of St. Elizabeth the night before his official ordination, and he considers that his real ordination into the priesthood. In 1905, Schmidt found himself in legal trouble. He was forging diplomas for seminary students who were failing, but the charges were dropped due to mental defect, and he spent some time in a sanatorium. In 1907, he was suspended by the same bishop he claimed ordained him because he used fake documents to secure a position at a church that was about three hours away. Schmidt had other issues in Germany, including having sexual relationships with women and accusations of molesting altar boys. But the final straw was his unusual way of conducting mass. I tried to find details on what he did specifically, but I couldn't find them except that he rewrote prayers and made scriptural errors. He was moved around a bit in Germany before it became obvious he wasn't going to get any more assignments. They either ran out of places to send him or they ran out of patience trying to rehabilitate this problem priest. In 1909, he immigrated to the United States using fake letters of recommendations to get a position in Louisville, Kentucky, likely at St. John's, but as we said, his exact assignment is disputed. As mentioned before, he did not serve as a pastor in Louisville. Instead, he spent his year there focused on learning English. After that year, he went to Trenton, New Jersey, the assignment at Trenton is usually dropped in modern retellings for some reason. 
In December of 1910, he was banished from the diocese in Trenton after he performed a marriage ceremony without permission, and the bishop told the papers that he believed Schmidt to be mentally deranged and lacking common sense. When he left Trenton, he was assigned to St. Boniface in New York City. We don't know the exact year, but it was by 1912, and we know he was there by 1912 because that's when he met 20-year-old Anna L. Mueller, who worked as a housekeeper at the church. Anna was an immigrant from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, having come to the U.S. in November of 1910 as a 17-year-old. You'll find a variety of dates and ages as to when Anna came to the U.S. out there, but a shout-out to the Ellis Island for having a searchable database. We were able to find her record, and it was for sure November 1910, and her age is listed as 17. She worked a variety of jobs as a housekeeper and a governess before she was hired at St. Boniface in late 1912. While there, she met Schmidt, and it wasn't long before they began having an affair. He initially introduced himself to her as a music teacher rather than as a priest, but it wasn't that long before she knew the truth. This did not end their relationship, though. In May of 1912, Schmidt was dismissed from St. Boniface. He turned up again in October at St. Joseph's in Harlem with a letter of recommendation from St. Boniface that he surely forged. It's unclear what he was doing in the time between these two positions. In February of 1913, Schmidt took out a marriage license at City Hall and married Anna. Sort of. Schmidt performed their marriage ceremony himself, which was not recognized by the church, obviously, and he never filed with the city that the marriage took place, so it was never recognized by the state. It's unclear if Anna knew the certificate was never filed, but she surely knew that this wasn't 100% legitimate, as Schmidt was still a priest. Anna continued to work at St. Boniface until August 1913, when she was fired for her, quote, way of life, unquote, by the same priest who had Schmidt transferred. It's possible he recently found out that Anna was pregnant, likely about five or six months along and unable to hide it anymore. No longer being an employee of St. Boniface, Anna also lost her housing, so Schmidt rented her an apartment about a mile from St. Joseph's at 68 Bradhurst. Schmidt, though, lived at the rectory with the other priests. On September 5th, an 18-year-old woman and her 11-year-old brother were walking along the Hudson River on the New Jersey side when they found a package washed up on the bank. Curious, they opened it and found a human torso. Over the next week or so, more parts washed up. The doctor who conducted the post-mortem told the papers at the time that he believed the person who dismembered this body, which they knew was a woman, had some knowledge of anatomy and initially believed the woman was the victim of what was called a, quote, illegal operation, which was kind of a code meaning an abortion. Police released seven or eight names of missing young women who met the basic description of this Jane Doe. The biggest issue is that not all of the parts were found. Most importantly, her head was missing. The authorities had a Jane Doe on their hands, and in 1913, it must have seemed like a major task to identify her. It's rather remarkable that they did, and it's really down to their attention to detail. 
First, they noticed that some of the remains were wrapped in a newspaper from New York. Second, the remains were weighted down with schist, which is a type of rock that is much, much, much more common in New York City than it is in New Jersey. It's actually hard to find in New Jersey. So the investigators knew to start looking in New York, and the New York City police were brought in. What investigators knew about this Jane Doe was that she was 18 to 25 years old with a birthmark on her shoulder, and she had been pregnant. There were no fetal remains, so this must have been based on the size of her uterus, and it was estimated that she was about five to six months along. Some of the remains were in pillowcases, and by pillowcases, we mean the outer fabric that the feathers would have been stuffed in, not a pillowcase like we think of today. The pillowcases the remains were in were embroidered with an A and had a manufacturing tag on them and a price tag. Investigators went through the manufacturer to find the retailers and was able to find the retailer whose price tag was on it. But the retailer ran a cash business and did not record every sale of every pillow. In the meantime, a man named Peter Sternman kept after the police that his daughter was missing for a year and he was sure that the Jane Doe was her. But he was incoherent in much of his rantings, and they actually wondered if he possibly had killed his daughter. But they found her alive and well. Sternman seems to have just been a mentally unwell person. There were other misidentifications. A waiter was sure it was his wife who deserted him years previously, but she was found alive living in Cuba. Police announced on September 13th that they had positively identified the Jane Doe as Antoinette Day after the birthmark was identified by one of her brothers. But then Antoinette's other siblings viewed the remains and they said, no, it's definitely not her. The birthmark was not a match. And her sister said that Antoinette had a much smaller build. She only weighed probably 100 pounds at the most. And all of these misidentifications are making the papers, you have to imagine the whiplash people following this case in the papers were having every day, a new identification. But the pillowcase angle, that's what eventually paid off when they were able to track one of the purchases. Someone had a delivery of furniture, and with that delivery was an order of the pillows. And the delivery was to the apartment at 68 Bradhurst. The landlord told the investigators that the apartment had recently been rented to a Hans Schmidt for a female relative of his, and that the young woman who lived there had not been seen for a few days. Investigators entered the apartment and found that it was clearly a crime scene. There was an attempt at cleaning up the blood from the walls and the floor, but it wasn't a thorough enough job, and they were able to find evidence of blood. They also found a knife and a handsaw, and it would be later determined that these items had recently been purchased by Schmidt. Now, if this wasn't enough, they found other items that were embroidered with the A's on them in the same style that Anna had obviously done herself. They found letters between Anna and Schmidt in a trunk, and some of the letters referred to St. John's. So at 3 a.m., the police knocked on the door of the rectory. Schmidt was asleep, so another priest answered the door and had the task of waking him up. There are some dramatic tellings of his confession that followed, 
but it's hard to determine what was newspaper embellishment and what actually happened. It seems the most likely version is that he initially denied knowing why the police were there, but when they laid out the evidence, he confessed. One source says that Schmidt asked to change out of his nightclothes before being taken to jail. While in the bathroom, he pulled out a razor and tried to get it into his neck, but he had been followed by a police officer who was able to stop him from killing himself. Schmidt's confession was a full one. He initially claimed to the police that he killed her because he didn't want her to live without him, and he knew their relationship just couldn't last. But he later told a fellow priest that his patron saint told him he had to sacrifice Anna, and that was the beginning of his insanity defense. He said on September 2nd, he went into the bedroom where she was sleeping and cut her throat. He then dismembered her. He then took five trips on the ferry across the Hudson so he could dispose of Anna's body, one package at a time, to avoid causing suspicion. He attempted to clean the apartment, and he took the mattress out to burn in a vacant lot. As far as the remains of the baby, the modern articles I found make no mention of this, but I found an old article from 1913 that said that they were searching the lot where the mattress was burned for the remains. This was probably based on information given to them by Schmidt, but I never saw any follow-up on if they found anything. Days after his arrest, his parents in Germany received a postcard from him saying that he was going to be back in Germany soon, so it seemed like Schmidt was planning to leave the U.S. The search of Anna's apartment and Schmidt's residence at St. Joseph's brought out evidence of even more crimes. Schmidt had a second apartment, and there he was running a counterfeiting operation. This brought the Secret Service into the investigation. Also found were blank death certificates, and he admitted he had a plan to kill old and sick parishioners and anyone else he deemed a hopeless case, and he would kill them it would be a mercy, but investigators believed he was doing it for some type of insurance benefit. So in this, he confessed not just to Anna's murder, but also to plans to kill even more people. A third apartment would be found that Schmidt rented three days after he murdered Anna, and he used it to store her belongings and also some of the evidence. In all of this, there was a question of Hans Schmidt's credentials as a priest and his identity. His rewritten prayers and scriptural errors in his sermons make many wonder if either Schmidt was never ordained or if the man saying he was Hans Schmidt and using Hans Schmidt's credentials was an imposter. A baptismal certificate for Hans Schmidt was found in the same trunk as the letters from Anna and it appears Schmidt had filled it out himself, which definitely made it seem like he was an imposter. There was a lot of motivation to prove him a fake priest, but it turned out that Hans Schmidt had been ordained, and someone who knew Schmidt in Germany positively identified him as the same man. A photograph was sent to Germany where Schmidt's parents positively identified him, removing all doubt. While he did forge the recommendation letters, he was an ordained priest, Schmidt mounted an insanity defense at his trial, claiming he was delusional and he was basically told by God through his patron saint to kill Anna. 
But it's more his attorney mounting this insanity defense, because this is according to his attorney and the psychiatrist who examined him. Schmidt rejected the idea he was insane, since God really did tell him to do this, and he was willing to face the consequences of his actions. The prosecution even looked into his background for evidence of mental instability, with the assistant district attorney going to Germany in late October to interview Schmidt's family. This was prompted by a letter that Schmidt's brother had sent to the prosecutors outlining the odd behavior of his brother when he was in Germany and also a strong family history of mental illness. The trial started on December 7th, 1913. Again, justice moved swiftly. When, in his opening statement, his attorney said that Schmidt was insane, Schmidt had to be restrained because he jumped up yelling that he wasn't. He was not insane. The state put forth a more practical narrative. Anna was pregnant and believed he was going to leave the priesthood for her. Schmidt couldn't face his double life being exposed, and he killed Anna to protect himself. The main part of the prosecution's case was the confession and their own expert's opinion that Schmidt was sane. For the defense, Schmidt's father had come from Germany to testify that Schmidt had been cruel to animals as a child, and he said that Schmidt's mother encouraged his extreme religious devotion. He was helping establish a history of mental illness in his son. Multiple psychiatrists called alienists back then testified that he was legally insane, and it seems like much of the media reporting leaned towards this theory. Schmidt did not take the stand. He told his attorneys he would only aid in his defense if God told him to, and God hadn't told him to yet. This means he also wasn't talking to his attorneys during the preparation for the trial or during the trial, so they were having to defend him without any information from Schmidt himself. On the question of insanity, the jury could not come to a unanimous verdict. It was 10-2 in favor of guilt— But one of the jurors said that most thought he was insane, but some were afraid that this not guilty by reason of insanity would let him out on the streets in the future, and they felt that he was dangerous and should be locked away. So the judge declared a mistrial, and the state opted to retry him. So on January 19th, the second trial started, and the prosecution's case was so similar that they just went through it at a faster pace. The witnesses and the questions were largely the same. The only difference in the defense is that they raised the possibility during questioning that Anna died accidentally, like when a bed fell on her, and Schmidt had only been guilty of dismembering her to hide his association with her. The jury sided with the prosecution wholly this time, finding Schmidt guilty. He was then sentenced to death in February of 1914, which was just five months after the murder. Schmidt would then begin to appeal his conviction. In July, he asked for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. But this wasn't actual evidence so much as a change in his story. Schmidt claimed his crime was actually manslaughter because Anna died during an abortion, which was illegal at the time. And he wasn't the only one present. He said that if he confessed to that, he and the people with him would all be convicted. But if he tried an insanity defense, they may all go free. There is one circumstance that makes this a possible scenario. His partner in counterfeiting was a dentist who was known to perform abortions. 
but against this was the baby clothes that were found at Anna's apartment. She appeared to be making preparations for having a baby. Regardless, this isn't a legal argument in favor of new evidence. The new evidence has to be something unknown to the defendant at the time of the trial. His decision to fake insanity was a defense strategy, not evidence. All other appeals were denied, and he was executed at Sing Sing Prison in February 1916. During the time Schmidt was waiting for his sentence to be carried out, investigators followed up on, or at least tried to follow up on, other possible victims of Schmidt. There was Alma, as we talked about. There was a young girl from his hometown in Germany who was murdered before he came to America. There was also a woman in New York named Helen Green who wrote Schmidt letters saying that she couldn't live without him. But she had moved to Chicago very suddenly a month before Anna's murder. Whether police ever made contact with her was not reported in the newspapers that I could find. There was a five-year-old boy that Schmidt had presented to some people as his son. He also hasn't been identified. Schmidt told authorities that the boy was not his son, but that he was alive and well. He refused to say who he was because he didn't want to drag the boy's family into this whole mess. And finally, a report was sent to authorities that Hans Schmidt had come to the U.S. with a woman he identified as his wife, and they were investigating in Louisville for her whereabouts. Like Helen Green, I couldn't find any outcome of this. Schmidt was never definitively linked to any other deaths. I find it very interesting that, I guess my opinion and theory on this is that I don't think that Hanj was responsible for Alma's death because Wenling had been acting so strange and a lot of things would have to fall into place. It seems too much of a coincidence that Wenling is acting strange and he wants to monitor the school building unless he worked with Hanj. I don't see how that plays out. Yeah, I think it's interesting when people are like, oh, he was convicted on circumstantial evidence. I'm like, he was convicted on a whole lot of circumstantial evidence. I mean, nobody saw him kill her, but people saw him in the room with her. He had access, primary access to all of the places, the furnace, the school building. He left when the police were searching I don't actually see how he didn't do it. I don't think that Schmidt, who didn't know the church well, was new to the country, was still learning English, would have been so bold to do this or would have been able to lure a little girl. I just don't really see him doing it. I think it's an interesting theory, and police did pursue it at the time. It's not just a new theory, you know, in modern retellings. They did investigate it. He even made a comment that... He was almost like tempted to confess just to let Wendling get out of jail because he was going to be executed no matter what. But he's like, but I didn't do it. Schmidt murdered people for practical reasons. In my view, he was going, he murdered Anna for a practical reason. He was looking at these elderly people in his church to kill next. If he did anything to these other women, they were women in his life when he was supposed to be a celibate priest. I don't really see him just randomly killing someone. Everything seemed to be a means to an end for him. So this is our sophomore album, the second one. And uh, sometimes when you start writing a song, it becomes something else. But uh, it kind of had a creepy 
sound to it, so that the the words kind of were tugged that direction, I guess. And then um, suddenly it became about a murdering priest. And for some reason, I just kind of decided, well, maybe I should Google this. This might have happened before. And it turns out that there was an actual case. You know, the case that uh, you know. So I kind of turned the lyrics that direction. I really wanted to get inside the psychology of this guy, the the mind of somebody who would who could actually do this. I mean, and so I think once I read deeper into the case, it inspired me more. It opened up the create the creative process even more. It inspired a few more verses that came out of it by seeing that there was a case that was in fact, you know, we got the name Alma Kelmer from from the case as well. And then the the body parts floating up on the shore of the Hudson River uh, in the the later part of the song where there you have the bridge, uh, that is apparently what happened. Uh, some kids were playing down by the river, and part of the body started floating up there. Inside the mind of the killer, uh, I think I, I kind of the, the chorus makes it sound like this guy is um, has great remorse for this problem he has, and maybe ha- is 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 uh, haunted by his guilt, but yet he has to do these things. Do you cry in the night uh, is, is what the question posed to, to the killer here. But when I think about this guy, when I look deeper into the case of, of Schmidt, I think he had no remorse whatsoever. Uh, somebody who is a sociopath like this guy um, and, and could dismember the body uh, the way he did is probably approaching this with no remorse or guilt or empathy for his victims.
chances of a love of the blue. 